Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us two purposes of the law, to silence man and to bring guilt upon man. Today we'll study Paul's disclaimer about the law before we get to the third purpose. All right, if you've got your Bibles, you need to turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans, chapter 3. Book of Romans, chapter 3. And we will commence our reading in this chapter from verse number 10. And then we'll come to our text in verse number 20. But let's read from verse number 10 of Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, There shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are shut up to one book, and that is your book. We are not concerned about the opinions of men. Our great concern is to know what you say and what mandate you have given to us as a church. Lord, we are in times when the voice of man have drowned out the voice of God. We are times where good is bad and bad is good. We are in a state of moral inversion where the most perverse act and thought is entertained as normal and natural. You need to visit us, O oh Lord. And we pray this morning that you might use your word to stir our hearts and move our minds and souls to the gravity of man's condition and his need for Christ. Lord, if anyone has come into this building this morning for searching perhaps inquisitive, curious, 
I just pray, Lord, that that curiosity might turn into reality. And they may find that we speak truth, not fables. But the truth is harsh. And it takes a broken heart to respond to that truth. May we humble ourselves before you and your word. And may our hearts be plowed up by your word. We rest this morning with the assurance that your word once sent forth will do its work. We may not see it. It may not be done immediately in the heart and the mind of that person. But like barbed arrows, they're stuck in the human heart and the human mind. And there are moments when the Spirit of God will use those weapons to bring attention to your word. We can only do what you've told us to do. We don't have the resources to convict men. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Our task is to be obedient servants declaring the whole counsel of God. Would you help me this morning to do that faithfully? To do that without fear? But also do it with an awesome sense of responsibility. That the vessel that is used uh, can contaminate uh, the means of reaching men. And so cleanse this vessel so that what comes out would be truly honoring and glorifying to you. Forgive us for our folly. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us, Lord, for our self-dependence. That is the greatest obstacle to your working. And give us a heart and a mind and a soul that looks to you and to you only. Do your work, O oh God. The work that no man can do but thee. And we will thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When you come to the book of Romans, there's no other book in the New Testament that shows the forensic skills of the Apostle Paul and all of his brilliance than this book of Romans. The Apostle Paul is prosecuting God's case against man. And he does it so brilliantly that there's no other verdict any man can reach that by the time Paul is finished in chapter 3, that man, all men, are declared guilty before God. Paul in chapter 1 proves that the Gentiles are guilty. And they're guilty for four reasons. Number one, God revealed truth to them. There's revelation, general revelation. Paul refers to creation. All men, and especially the Gentiles, have got that witness. But then Paul tells us that rather than accept that revelation, man repudiated that revelation and held down the truth in unrighteousness. It was a positive, deliberate act of suppressing the truth. That God gave to man. And then thirdly Paul says. Man rationalized himself out of truth. 
into what we call pagan idolatry. Rather than bow to God, he bowed to the things that God made, the creature rather than the creator. And the result of all of this, Paul says, is the worst degrading form of immorality. Those are the four steps that led the Gentile down, down, down. But the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 also points out that the Jews are equally as guilty as the Gentiles. Why? Again, God gave them revelation. But not just general revelation, special revelation. It is called his word. But how do they respond to that word? They ritualize the word. Turn it into a ritual rather than submit to the word. And so the Jews love their ceremonies and their liturgy. Just like people like their little candles and their little images and bow down to the statutes. That's exactly what happened with the Jews. So they receive revelation. They ritualize that revelation and then they rationalize themselves into a false sense of security. Because God has blessed us with this revelation, we are now God's peculiar people. It doesn't matter whether we obey the law or not. We just caught the law. And so what they did, they felt they were absolutely secure by just that one fact that God has given to us the law. It's like those of us in the church who got the Bible. And it's in our homes. But the only time it's removed that the dust is dust off is on Sunday morning. But yet we feel so comfortably about the fact that we are safe and secure. See? That was the Jew. Now what was the result? It was the most diabol diabolical form of hypocrisy that the world has ever seen. Having all the truth vested in Israel... But yet, those people that were designed to become a centripetal force to draw the Gentiles in by their hypocrisy turned the Gentiles away from the faith that is found in Christ. That's the case that Paul has built up in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then when he comes to chapter 3, he concludes it by drawing three simple witnesses to corroborate the case he's been making. He, he goes into the book of Psalms and he quotes David, the great psalmist. And he, he shows us from the book of Psalms that David spoke of man as all have sinned. There's none righteous. And then there's not only one witness, he calls the witness of Isaiah. And Isaiah too takes the stand and says, yes, they're all gone out of the way. And then he turns and he turns to the, the, the wise man Solomon. In the book of Proverbs, and Solomon too adds his voice to the case and says, yes, man is guilty. It is said in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every mouth shall be stopped. And God stopped the mouth of all people by just these three witnesses. See? That's what Paul has done so far in chapter 3. But there are two other issues that remain for Paul to deal with in this chapter. One is... What is the role of the law in the economy of God in his dealings with man? So why did God give the law in the first case? That, of course, is something that Paul is going to deal with in verse 19 and verse 20. 
what's the purpose of the law? And then the second thing that Paul is going to deal with in this chapter is what is the genius of God in resolving the whole sin problem. And let me just say to you, for God to solve the sin problem, three things must be involved. Number one, the law must be honored. How does he still honor his law and yet pardon the sinner? That's a mystery, sir. Number two, God must be glorified. How does God get glory in all of this? And then number three, man must be justified. But how can you justify a sinner who is a positive sinner? He deliberately sins. How then do you justify a man like that? Only the genius of God could solve that problem. And that's where in the book of chapter 3, you'll find that Paul works it out. I'm sure that God not only justified the sinner, but God did it in such a way that he was still just by the time he was finished. Miracle of miracles. Mystery of mysteries. But only the genius of God could solve that problem. Now, I have been dealing with verse 19 and verse 20. And uh, I want to pick that up again and uh, deal with the last purpose of the law. But you remember that Paul highlights in verse 19 and 20 that there are three main purposes of the law. Now, this is not an exhaustive treatment of what the law is all about and why God gave the law. Uh, we will make reference to another reason why the law was given. It's not here. So Paul is not given an exhaustive treatment of the subject. But what Paul is doing, what Paul mentions, he mentions those aspects that fits into the narrative that he had been dealing with in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Brilliantly prosecuting God's case against man and, and explaining man's guilt. And then Paul tells us the role of the law and the law does three things. Number one, the law was given to shut every man's mouth, to silence man. See? You know, people love to argue. You know, they can do wrong. And you know that they can still be wrong and strong at the same time. They love to argue. And this is the problem with man. Because in spite of the fact that man is clearly a sinner, he always comes up with extenuating circumstances and excuses. He wants to argue with God, he's not as bad as the other guy. See? But the time the law is finished with you, you put your hand in your mouth. Silence. See? That's the purpose of the law. And the reason why we are in a generation that is no longer silence is because we have shelved the law. I'll come to that in just a moment because the church has to bear blame. It has aided and abetted this situation that we find, not deliberately by the way. I don't think they knew what they were doing. But they've quite inadvertently added to the situation. Because by shelving the law and not dealing with the law and surrendering the law to the Seventh-day Adventists, the world is in a state now they don't even know what sin is. Now the old generation knew what sin is. But this, this new generation we've got, they don't even understand what the issue is. And the reason for that is, we have shelved the law. 
So Paul said it's supposed to silence man. That the first, number two, Paul says that all the world may become what? Guilty. It's to stir up guilt in man. It's to take the sinner who is callous and hardened and has no desire for God. It's designed to break up his heart. Bulldoze him. Till he comes to the point where he is now softened and now feels guilty. But again, once we've shelved the law, how are you going to produce guilt? You tell me. This is the purpose of the law, to create guilt. But that's the problem with our preaching. It's no longer creating guilt. It's about making people feel good about themselves. So when people come to church, they go away and say, Oh, I feel so good. I go to church. Then you ask them, What do you feel good about? Tell me what you feel good about. Well, the singing was good. And then a 15 minute sermon. Well, I can't even remember what the pastor said, but I remember one verse. Jesus wept. We are in a situation where we are in a war over truth. A war over truth. It's the only thing that can liberate man and set men free. But sadly the church has lost its purpose and its mission. And it doesn't understand the prophetic role it has. In breaking down the resistance and the hardness of man. And once again probing his conscience. To the reality that he's not good. He's just bad. See? That's where we're failing. As a church. And I speak collectively in this matter so it's a stir up guilt but then Paul tells us there's a third reason which I want to deal with this morning in chapter 3 look at it there in chapter 3 and verse number 20 he says therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is what? the knowledge of sin now, I want to deal with that this morning. But I also want to say that you and I need to rediscover the lawful use of the law. Now, Paul deals with this in, in, in Timothy, you know. Uh, look for me for just a minute at, at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just briefly. Verse 3. Said, I, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia that thou might discharge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables or endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of a, and, and faith on fame for which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jaggling. Desiring to be teachers of the law. Notice. Understanding neither what they say. Nor whereof they affirm. But notice. But we know that the law is good. If. A man is how lawfully. And then Paul tells us why the law was given. Listen. Knowing this. That the law is not made for a righteous man. 
But for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the unholy, the profane, the murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers. That's who the law is for. The unsaved man. But that's not what we preach. We go out there and we give him the impression that before we even tell him he's a sinner, we tell him that Christ died for him. He didn't even know that he, he doesn't even feel his sin yet. So he, he says a little prayer because he's not broken. That's our problem. So we, we're bringing people into the church who have never had a conversion experience. Never broken. Never felt the gravity of their sin. We put plasters on cancer. Because we have taken the law and we shelled it. So we've created the monstrosity that exists today in our churches. Look, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're living in a proud, arrogant age, a generation that is obsessed with itself. That's our generation. And I want to say to you that unless this generation is humble before God, Humble before God. There's going to be no repentance and no conversion. See? And that is where we need to understand the usefulness of the law. You young people who are here this morning. Can I tell you something that's not a, a open, it's an open secret? Could I tell you this morning that you are liable before the supreme judge of the universe and under the wrath of God? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Has mom told you that? Has daddy told you that? Has your preacher told you that? That's an open secret. This is why we need the book of Romans. This is why we need to plow up the hearts and the consciences of men once again to bring them under the grips of the power of the word. You remember Jonathan Edwards that preached the sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God? No, there are two things I want to tell you about Jonathan Edwards. He was a monotone. Monotone. Number two, he read his sermons. That's what he did. Read his sermons. But by the time he was finished reading them, men held on to the pews. Where their fingernail prints were left in the pews. They felt as though before the service would end, the wrath of God would consume them. Where is that today? Where is that today? It's gone. Totally gone. And again, it's because we have shelved the law. Look, read all the great evangelists of the past. Finney, Dwight L. Moody. See, and you will discover that one of the series that they always preached was on the law. The Ten Commandments. 
Now, we're afraid of the Ten Commandments because we don't worship on the Sabbath. That's not a problem for me. It's the substance of the Ten Commandments. God still has one day that we should, it's called the first day. But don't let the fact that they emphasize the Sabbath. It's not the, it's the spirit of the law that we need to understand. But we're scared. So all the great evangelists, we wonder how were they so successful? Why did men bawl and fall down in, in conviction and, 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 and came to the altar? It's because they brought men under tremendous conviction. And not they. The spirit has something to work with. It was called the law. See, the law is good if used lawfully. But our whole method of evangelism has turned this whole thing upside down. We start with God's love, where we haven't even dealt with human sinners yet. Now, I know I've said this several times in this church, but I'm not too sure if it's getting home to people. And I hope that it does. Now, I want to point out something to you here before I deal with this third one. When you look at these three reasons that Paul gave to silence man, to stir up human guilt, and to synthesize man to sin, it is very, very clear that the order and the sequence is not accidental. Paul did not just write indiscriminately the order here. Clearly, the Apostle Paul designed and he used the logic of his brilliance to give us the order in which they come. Notice, what's the overall goal of the law to silence man? But how are you going to silence man? How are you going to silence man's arguments? You silence man's argument by proving that he's guilty. But next, how do you prove he's guilty? You got to show him he's a sinner. So you see the order? That's how you do it. The sequence is not accidental or random or indiscriminate. It is quite deliberate. And so Paul is letting us know Clearly, what this whole thing is all about. Now, before I deal with the third one, which has to do with synthesizing man to sin, you notice in verse 20 that before Paul comes to that third point, he issues a disclaimer. He said, before he mentioned, he said that no flesh should be justified by what? The law. So before he begins to deal with this third matter now, he disclaims that the law could ever justify a person. It could ever pardon a person. It could ever impart divine righteousness to a person. We would say the law cannot save a person. But why is Paul forced to mention this at this juncture? Because one of the great dangers was the misreading and the misunderstanding and the misinterpretation of the law which happened among the Jews. Now remember the Jews were very fond of the law. And this fondness blinded them to their need of Christ. That's where the battle is in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the men are carrying the glad tidings of Christ's death, his sacrificial death, his atonement, and the Jews are resisting. And the reason why they are resisting, they can't see why they need Christ while they have the law. 
By the way, in, in, in verse number 17 of chapter 3, Paul says, the Jews, look at it carefully in verse 17. He said that the Jews rested in the law. They put their whole weight on the law. Their dependence upon the law. See? Notice in verse number 23, he said that the Jews boasted of the law. See? You Gentiles are pagans. We are special. We've got the law. What do you have? See? And then in verse number 18, Paul says the Jews are instructed in the law. For the time he's a boy and a lad, his teachers and his rabbis fill his mind with the law, memorizing the law, teaching the law. He's saturated with the law. And then if you look at verse number 20, to that means the Jews had a knowledge of the truth in the law. But here was the, the mistake. They now began to trust in the law. In order to become righteous before God. Look with me for just a moment at Romans chapter 10 and see how Paul puts it. Look at verse 1 to 3. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. But notice. Not according to knowledge. Verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. And going about to establish their own righteousness. Having not submitted to the right. That's exactly what Paul is saying. They now wanted to produce what is called law righteousness. That by obedience to the law. I can now find righteousness that God justifies me. Now God has another type of righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. When a sinner puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God not only forgives his sin and removes his sin, but God does something. He takes the righteous Christ and he clothes that man who is saved in right, so that God says, you are now justified. You are now right in my eyes. That's God's righteousness, but it comes through Christ. But the Jews are now believe by obeying the law, I can come to the level of righteousness that God says, okay, you're justified. That's why the Apostle Paul has to start this third purpose of the law with this disclaimer. That no man is ever justified by the works of the law. But secondly, it was also a problem among what is called the Judaizers in the New Testament. A Judaizer was a person who was a Jew who embraced the Christian faith. But he did not shed his Jewish trappings. He brought those Jewish trappings into the Christian faith. So this is how he thought. Alright, I understand I need Christ, so I trust Christ for salvation. But I maintain my salvation by keeping the law. So I'm saved by faith in Christ, but I'm kept by keeping the law. That is called the Galatian heresy. That's what Paul does in the book of Galatians. So this is why it's so important for the Apostle Paul in dealing with the law to make this disclaimer the law cannot save any man. And by the way, we have a, a cultic branch of Christianity that teaches basically the same thing. I was just sent a book. I got this thing in the mail. 
this week I went to the post office to collect mail for the school and I got this package and I'm saying to myself but hey, where this package come from? I ordered in the book and I opened the book and lo and behold the adult Sabbath school Bible study guide to the book of Romans so they've been listening to the series in the book of Romans on Sunday evenings and uh, they sent me this book on the book of Romans this is Seventh-day Adventist this is a group that says you're saved by Christ but you're kept by keeping the law so if you break the law you're not saved you've got to get rebaptized. baptized it's a Seventh-day Adventist you've probably baptized a dozen times already if you haven't been baptized a dozen times you ought to be because you sin every day You see the relevance of dealing with the epistle of Paul, like this, the book of Romans? Not just to know about the past, but its relevance to the present. Could I give you a secret? There's nothing new under the heavens. What has been is that which shall be. See? So all the heresies you find today, we got a church over here called the JW. That's not a new heresy. That's an old heresy. That's the Arian heresy. That said that Christ was the first creature of God. He was Michael the archangel. That's what they teach. But that's not original then. They borrowed it from a man called Arius. Who was defrocked. And declared a heretic. And put out of the church. So I'm saying to you. It's important for us. To understand. The importance of the law. By the way one last thing later this. By looking to the law, they've completely denied the sufficiency of Christ and his death and his atonement. See? Look, Christ's death took care of your past sin. It took care of your present sin. And thank God it take care of your future sin. See? He's perfected forever. Those that are sanctified. Forever. Those that are sanctified. See? That's the glory of the sufficiency of the death of Christ. And the folly of saying we need Christ plus the law. You know, I thought this argument was finished a long time ago. You remember in Acts chapter 15, this was something that was destroying the church. And the apostles had to deal with it. It's a funny thing, we got to deal with it today after so long. It was settled in Acts chapter 15. Look with me for just a moment to Acts chapter 15, quickly. The crisis in Acts chapter 15. Look at verse number 5. But there rose certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to be circumcised, and commanded them to do what? Keep the law of Moses. This is not new. There's a, a man who is a Jew who becomes a Christian. He's now a, a Judaizer. He comes into the church. He does not shed his Jewish trappings. And he said, look, hey, I've got Christ. But I still need to be circumcised. And you need to be. Not only that, you better keep the law of Moses. That was the crisis in the church. Now remember the Jewish church. The first century church started the Jewish church. Paul had just begun in Acts chapter 30 sending the gospel to the Gentile world. They had received Christ by faith. Now you've got people in the church saying these Gentiles must keep the law. 
And the Gentiles in the crisis, what do we do? So what they did, they call a council together. Look at verse 6. And the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. How are we going to solve this problem? Let's hear what the scriptures say on this matter. So council is called. And then notice in verses 7 to 18, there are three main characters that get up to speak. The first one is Peter. And if you look at verse 7, uh, Peter gets up and, and when they had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth shall hear uh, the word of the gospel and believe. And God, uh, and God which knoweth the hearts of, of, of men, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit even as we... In other words, Peter said, look, the Gentiles got saved the same way we got saved. We came in through the door of Christ. We didn't come through the law. That's how we got saved. So Peter said, we're saved the same way. And then Barnabas gets up. And you find that in verse 12. And then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Saul. Declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles. Paul is saying, look, the fact that God has sanctioned the work among the Gentiles, he has vindicated that work through miracles and signs. This is the hand of God. They too now are silent. But you need three witnesses. So who's the third one? James gets up now. And look what James says in verse 13. And after they'd held their peace, James answered said, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that is Peter, had declared how God all at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to disagree the words of the prophet as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, which is set up. And the residue of men might seek after the Lord all the Gentiles. So Peter said, hey, here is the authority of God's word. And Peter, by the way, in this particular he's quoting from Isaiah and Amos so he says the scriptures vindicate this matter and then what's the conclusion look at verse 19 of the same book wherefore my sentence is this that you trouble not them which are among the Gentiles that turn to God. But that you write unto them that they abstain from the pollution of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. And then he goes on to say, For Moses of old time hath in every city preached, verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch and, uh, with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbath, and Silas, and men among the brethren. And they wrote letters after this manner, etc., etc. Problem was solved. The question was, the, the crisis was resolved. No man needs to be saved through Christ and having to keep the law. And I feel sorry for you this morning, my dear friend. Greatly sorry for you. If you haven't come to Christ and have liberty and freedom in Christ, now you're under the master stick of the law. Believing that if you don't do that, you're lost. You're lost. You're lost. My friend, you'll be lost every day. 
If you look into the law and not the Christ, you are men most miserable. See? Most miserable. See? So the Apostle Paul uh, clearly is dealing with a matter that was dealt with in the book of Acts. My point this morning is that we as a church have still got to understand that while the law does not save us, the law is a weapon in the arsenal of the believer to hammer away the hard hearts of men who are not saved. It's the only thing that can show people what sin is. You tell me what sin is. If there's no law, you explain to me why I'm a sinner. You tell me what sin is. There's no law that says I should not commit adultery, I should not lie, I should not steal, I should not covet, I should not honor God. There's no, nothing that says that at all. Where there's no law, there's no sin. Paul says that. So how are we going to get people to understand they're sinners when we just shelve the law? Now I hope you see our dilemma. I hope you sincerely see our dilemma. I'm not teaching heresy here this morning, friend. I'm not teaching legalism. Legalism is that a man is saved by keeping the law. But that should never make us not use the law lawfully in dealing with the unsafe person. Look, don't be so anxious to put him in the kingdom when he doesn't belong there. He doesn't belong there if he doesn't know he's a sinner, he repents. He doesn't belong in the kingdom. But you put him there. And you're going to be held responsible for this lostness as well. Because when he stands up before God and says, She told me so. He told me so. What are you going to do? You tell me what you're going to do in that day. Your job is not to convict men. Your job is a witness to present the gospel to men. Whether they accept it or not, that's their problem. But you've absolved yourself of the responsibility to get the gospel to them. The watchman. If I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die. And you do not go to the wicked and tell him he shall surely die. And that man dies in his wickedness. I will hold you responsible. But if I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die. And you declare to him, he shall surely, and he refuses. His blood is no longer on your hand. How much blood in your hand this morning? Have you told him? How much blood is on your hand this morning? See? So I'm saying to you this morning that the modern church has removed the spiritual arsenal that God has given to humble men and break men. And one of the greatest dilemmas today is helping the lost man to feel his sense of sin. Be sure that you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us that man is trying to explain away his guilt and sin through victimization. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268 462 4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m. 
Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.